Hello, Mechaba. Bonjour, Hola, Shalom, Vidravo, Namaste, Hello, Salam, Terra, Konichiwa, Sveki, and Hujambo. It's G3, and in this week's episode, I am pleased to be joined by Jordi Visser, and we are going to shed our U.S. centricity and talk about why going beyond the borders of the U.S. makes good sense when it comes to looking at markets that can outperform in the years to come. So if you could, please grab your mental passport and check important disclosures at the end of the episode. And please rate the podcast if you can. We are very fortunate to have a growing audience from all over the world, but rating the show helps it travel further. And with that, Bevinda. All right, we are recording. Greetings, Jordy. Greetings, G3. Before we get into the topic at hand, the great global rotation, I have another very important question to ask you. What was your sleep score last night? <laughs> We're going to do this every episode? Now? Pretty much, yeah. All right. Last night was an 89, but I do have good news on last month. I had the highest monthly sleep score that I've ever had. So 87 for the month. You know, they say if you're above 85, you're just showing off. <laughs> Don't tell my son that. <laughs> I was an 83. I was happy about that, but wow. <laughs> well, I remember where it started. You were complaining because you were in the seventies when you got that ring. I mean, I was in the low seventies. I feel like I put in a good base there though. I bottomed in the low seventies and I've been trending in the right direction since then. I was laughing last night as I went to sleep because I've got an air filter. I've got a humidifier during the winter time. I have a fan. I'm using white noise. Like <laughs> I'm doing everything I can to get that extra point of my sleep score. So. It sounds like your bedroom is sort of the sharper image uh, store. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, that's true. All right. Well, let's get to the task at hand here. Over the last couple of months, you have talked a lot in the morning meetings about a global rotation, which in your view, has started. You have also described the prospects for the U.S. equity markets using a very technical term. That very technical term you have used is blah. <laughs> so we are going to talk about that. But before we do, I want to align on terms here. Can you just describe what you mean by the great global rotation? Yes. And we talked about this at the beginning of when the podcast started a little over a year ago in one form. The rotation in my mind was out of technology and into energy. And part of the belief of that was that energy would be moving higher, that oil prices were in a structural bull market, and that would lead to inflation being higher than expected, interest rates moving higher and that that's not a great environment for technology to start out. So that was the first bit of the rotation. But the other element was that the market cap of the energy sector was less than a trillion dollars at that time. And Amazon was close to three trillion. So it seemed like an easy thing to say if the funding side is going to end up coming from tech and people are going to move investments that despite ESG and all of these things that you'd have a situation that money would rotate that way. This one's different, but it, it does have some of the same characteristics. Really what this is, is that when you 
look at global benchmarks, particularly MSCI All Country World Index or ACWI for the rest of this podcast, you've entered a point where the U.S. is 62% of the weighting. The second biggest country weight is 5% for Japan and about 4% for the U.K., now, I'm not saying that Japan and the UK have better growth situations going forward, but right now the US makes up somewhere between 22 and 25% of global GDP, but is 62% of stocks. And the biggest issue for that, which again gets back to what I started with, with technology versus energy, the highest weight is that US is overweight technology. And so where I see this going for at least the next five years, if not more, is a reweighting outside of this for reasons that I'm sure we'll talk about as we go through this. But it's really important. And as I talk to our investors and as I talk to people that follow the global benchmark of MSCI, ACWI, they have an issue right now in terms of realizing that if you believe five years from now, the equity markets outside of the U.S. are going to outperform, well, you're not positioned for that. If you believe technology is going to underperform the industrial world, because you believe of some of the structural forces that are supporting inflation and you believe that climate change and infrastructure boom and onshoring and all these different things that are happening are going to help the more hard asset industrial world, you're overweight towards the prior decade and really the prior, I'll even argue 30 years going back to the early 90s, you're overweight U.S. in technology. And I think you have to underweight those things going forward. Well, I want to understand why we got to this point. But before we do, I just have a very simple question to ask you about MSCI. We're talking about a huge amount of money that is determined in part by the MSCI, right? We're not talking about a small flow, a couple of billion here and there. We're talking massive amounts of money, right? You're talking massive amounts of money. I mean, the majority of the money that's going to be managed is cap weighted and it ends up being in this case, MSCI ACWI. But this same thing goes for all passive investing that's happened, which I think we, we discussed also at the beginning of one of the podcasts was the challenges of passive investing and how people were saying, is there a bubble in passive investing? Really, it's a question of, is there a bubble in allocating money to the winners of the past decade or the past 20 years, which when you get this huge gap between the haves and the have nots, which in this case is five, six technology companies, the weightings get skewed. And so if you get a reversal in this, the other direction, you're positioned for the prior decade to still be in the same driver. And I just don't see that happening. So... Passive really doesn't work well in a regime change. Well, especially when you have this much of outperformance. I mean, this is historical in terms of how much domination a few companies have had. And how did we get to this point where we have tech and this massive overweight of U.S. equities? I mean, why are we here? Yeah, I did a presentation on this back in, in March in Austin, and there were two major events that occurred right near the beginning of my career in this industry. So the first one was, believe it or not, the collapse of Japan. And it's important for people to realize that that occurred at the same time or within the, the same few years as Netscape going public and kind of the beginning of Web 1.0. But what people probably don't remember unless they're in their 50s and 60s and 70s was where Japan was at the end of the 1980s. So believe it or not, Japan, much smaller country than the U.S. in size, was actually 45% of ACWI 
back in 1988 and only 15% of global GDP. So very similar three to one ratio that we stand at now. It was being driven by a combination of just-in-time inventory being the dominant thing. So productivity miracle in Japan. You had a huge stock market. I remember my first job at Morgan Stanley on the risk management and controller side. I was doing the P&L analysis for Japan and it was an incredibly large number and people graduating college, speaking Japanese, people wanted to move there. Signs in Deer Valley Ski Resort were in, in Japanese. I mean, Japan was a major, major player. The Imperial Palace was valued higher than California. <laughs> Golf club memberships were tradable assets. And I remember this stuff because it was fascinating to me when I got there, how a country of this size could be in this position of dominating things. And so when you look now and you go, okay, well, how did them collapsing help? Well, they went down. They are now 5% of a weighting of acquis. So from 45% to five. Incredible. And that's taken, you know, 30 years. At the same time, I mentioned Netscape, but that was the beginning of Web 1.0, which the U.S., I mean, had a monopoly on. It wasn't just Silicon Valley. Obviously, Microsoft, Apple, some of this was California. It was all the West Coast. And generally in Silicon Valley, you're talking about a 30-mile long strip, 15 miles wide. That was basically the innovation capital of the world. And so it led to the U.S. starting to take off and their weighting went up to where it is Today, it's 62%. If you just do it of large cap, it's in the 70s. And you start to get in a situation where because of moats being around these companies and the ability for them to buy up all of these companies, you ended up where the U.S. was driven by the technological boom. And because we controlled Web 1.0 and Web 2.0, except for really China and a few companies in there that China started to compete with in the late 2015 on, you ended up in a situation where the U.S. now has a similar situation to where Japan did. Japan collapsed because of leverage and some other things. But the reality is a lot of this goes back to demographics and what was fueling it at the time. So I think I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway for the benefit of our audience. What is the catalyst now for this rotation to really kick in? There's a lot of them. I gave a speech the other night where I talked about the structural changes that have occurred post-COVID or let's say in the last five years, because some of these started before COVID. But COVID probably has hurt people looking at long-term trends just because three years is a long time. A lot of us are like, yeah, was that before COVID? When did I actually last travel there? When did this go on? And three years is a long time. And I think we're just exiting it now. But coming out of it, so if you take where we were in 2019 or even where we were in the first quarter of 2020, because of COVID, rates went down to zero. But we had been in a prior decade where I think the highest we saw the Fed's fund rate was just below 3% or at 3%. And before that, it had been a long time since we got to four. We're having higher rates now. And this is a new thing. We have inflation that has been higher. And even though I think it is going to come down sharply, I also believe it's going to be more volatile going forward and the economy will not go into a recession. If we don't go into a recession and inflation is still higher than the 2% that the Fed wants, the Fed funds rate at 5% will probably stay there for a bit of time. This is a completely different environment and it makes long-term investing in growth that before had a discount rate of close to zero. 
Now, all of a sudden you're talking about a, the barrier to, hey, what am I going to do with my money? Well, if you can compound at 5% a year, especially if inflation comes back down to three or four, do I really need to go out and buy software companies on a hope and a prayer? So one of the catalysts was that. The second one, and this started with the technology side, but we've obviously had a repricing and innovation. You've had significant falls in things like Arc, which was down 60 plus percent through last week. Amazon was down 45% through last week. Crypto was down with Bitcoin, down 67%. And these are year to date numbers. That's led to the public markets being lower, but the private markets haven't repriced in a lot of cases. And things like FTX, when you pull the money out in the public markets and they can't fund themselves, how much of what they needed on these marks was based on more money coming in? Was it a bit of a quote unquote Ponzi scheme where the money was fueling the movement higher? And I think the private markets have made it more challenging. And I think those repricings are going to be painful. So you're going to be overweight, some illiquid stuff that you put money into that hasn't been marked down all the way. And the question is, when you're putting money in from a global basis that was dominated again, private tech companies, the biggest valuations were U.S. tech companies and Chinese ones. And if those two are going to be challenging, you've got that. The other changes that have gone on that serve as a catalyst is just, well, if not tech, what? And COVID helped speed up something that was already going on, which is the need for onshoring of supply chains, moving things closer, not leveraging off of cheaper labor around the globe because the trade war with China has gotten there. So you've ended up in a situation where that is going on. But at the same point, you've got climate change. And I've said on this podcast, and I believe it, that the Russia invasion of Ukraine has led to a need for Europe to speed up the desire for energy independence. And that means more investment and in capital going towards making them energy independent and less money sitting around for other places. So tech was benefiting from a lack of places to invest, a lack of inflation, a lack of rates. And now we've kind of shifted it the other direction as we come out of this. And I think these are all structural things. So I totally understand how higher rates and some of the other things that you mentioned, inflation, even if it's coming down, it'll still be structurally higher. I understand how those could be headwinds. But some of those factors that you mentioned towards the end of what you just said, reshoring, energy independence and the like, sounds like they could lead to more U.S. investment and activity in general. And so I'm just wondering, couldn't those factors be viewed as constructive for U.S. markets? Well, again, when I say onshoring, I think dollars that were flowing from other countries over here, that's not going to happen at the same pace. I think everyone's looking out for themselves and dollars are going to stay there to build up things more and more. I don't see the money flowing around into the U.S. as the only growth potential. So the, right off the bat, I think you have to sort how much of the flows that were coming to the U.S. are not going to come anymore and they're going to stay in Europe and they're going to stay in China and they're going to stay in these other places. And I think you have to think of it that way. The second thing is I think dollars flowing out onshoring here, we don't have the labor to do everything. So are we going to redeploy plants that were going to China? Are they all coming back to the U.S.? No, we don't have the labor here to do it. That means India is going to benefit. Vietnam is going to benefit. Mexico is going to benefit. I'm sure Brazil is going to benefit. You're going to have money that's being redeployed from China to other places. But the main thing is when you look at the weightings of MSCI in general for the countries in the U.S., Technology, meaning the technology sector, but then plus Facebook, Google, Tesla, and Amazon, you're talking 40% of MSCI US, four zero. Technology in MSCI world, X US 
is 11%. <laughs> Industrials, materials, energy combined in MSCI World X, the US, are 27%. In the US, they're 13%. So if the dollars are going into these places, that means they're not going into tech. And if they're not going into tech, it's an underperformance. And that's why I said, I don't think the US market's going to suffer other than I think it's going to be a two-step up, one-and-a-half-step back type situation for U.S. markets because we just don't have the market cap. So if someone goes, you know what, I want to sell my technology and then I'm, I'm going to keep the money in the market, but I'm going to go buy everything X technology. Well, that's kind of what's happened. If you look at the S&P this year, technology, and then the other names that I mentioned, they're all down much more than the index is down. There's a lot of stuff inside the S&P which is only down in the very single digits. And at the highs last week, I think, it, I think S&P X tech was only down uh, 9% year to date, uh, while the S&P was still down 15, 16%. And that's the issue is I think because of the weightings, this will be a gradual rotation. And because of the way they're set up and because of how many dollars have flowed here, there's just other places for people to put their capital now. So it sounds like moving forward, you just talked about there was a period where Japan dominated and then that gave way and then the U.S. dominated. It sounds like you don't anticipate any one country dominating moving forward, right? Well, based on my overall view, which is we've talked about the catalysts, we've talked about the market cap weightings and the way things are positioned, the interest rate side. I think the other thing that's going to hurt is crypto, which we'll end up, I'll talk more about as we go to the next one. But in terms of a country... I don't think so. I think it's going to be very challenging. I do think emerging markets as a whole, and that's kind of a cop-out, but I do believe that when you take China, you take Japan, you take the US and you take Europe, those are going to be the biggest countries and they've already gone through their growth phase. One of the interesting things is if you go back and look at Japan in the 90s, the median age of a Japanese person at the beginning of, sorry, the 1980s was about 32. If you go to the U.S. and look at the median age of a person at the beginning of the 1990s, it was 32. If you go to China, which really was the dominant growth phase for the beginning of this, and if you ask for the economic story from 2000 to 2020, it's definitely China. I mean, they're now the second biggest economy on the planet, and they were less than a trillion dollars at the beginning, and now they're 20 trillion. Median age of a person in the country at the beginning of the 2000s was 32. <laughs> so the reality is it really matters a lot or it has over the past 30 years for the median age. And right now, the median age in Japan is 49. Median age of a person in Europe is 43. In the US, it's 38. And in China, it's 38 as well. So the countries that benefited the most were in 32s. If you take emerging markets, you're going to end up with a scenario that if I gave you the countries, you're going to be closer to the 32 for a lot of the emerging markets. Let's drill down a little deeper into the emerging markets. What are some of those drivers, even more specifically, that you think will fuel the move there? Well, here's an interesting part about emerging markets. Crypto is the biggest thing for me. And I know people are caught in this country, which is normal because of FTX, because of Luna, because of Terra. I mean, since June, the amount of people that have called crypto this little trillion dollar community as being the leverage thing of the world and taking it down, emerging markets are going to dominate the crypto world. It's not going to be about the US. And I've said on this podcast, and I will say it again and again, anyone trying to take the Web 1.0 and Web 2.0 playbook 
of find a company, invest in that company privately. It'll go public at some point. They'll get a mode around it. They'll buy up all the little companies. That game is over. The beauty of decentralization, which is what Web 3.0 is about, is decentralization. So who gets hurt the most? The most centralized places, the ones that have things like, hey, 60% of one market cap is the United States of America. So I do believe that when you go through it and you compare the numbers, Apple and Microsoft combined are $4 trillion, $4.1 trillion as of the time that we came in here in market cap. South America's GDP is about $3 trillion. Mexico's GDP is about $1.2 trillion. So the market cap of Apple and Microsoft is bigger than South America's GDP. It doesn't feel right. Not only does it not feel right, but people that have the most to lose from crypto are big tech companies. So I'm sorry, you're going to see a degradation of big mega cap tech companies where they get eaten away by countries around the world competing with a lot of the services that can be replicated with the blockchain and Web 3.0. The borderless internet is powerful. The other thing people have to remember is the rest of the world did not have access to technology the way that we do now. And some of this started just before. I mean, when did 5G come into existence? Again, this is one of these questions that if people go, I don't remember when it came in. Well, you couldn't really stream without buffering very well until you got 5G. Well, it came into play for the most part in the world 2019, just before COVID. So it's good that it happened just before because it meant people could sit at home and they could be on their Wi-Fi and they could go through this. So you have to remember that coming out of this, these countries have the ability to grow. They have the ability to use their phones for things. And that is a very powerful thing. So as we go through this, you asked on the last question, which country would be the next one? If I had to guess on one, it would be India. And part of the reason is because if you look at India's median age right now in the country of the largest population on the planet, it's 28. There's 300 million crypto users in the world. India has 100 million of them. DeFi activity. India is responsible for 59% of all DeFi activity. India has an enormous population. They have a desire to be a technological innovation place. And they're already showing up on the crypto side. And I think it would be a mistake to think that the U.S. is going to dominate this when a country like Nigeria has half the amount of crypto users that the U.S. does. Older people don't embrace crypto, the blockchain, and Web 3.0 the way that younger people do. So go to the places that are younger. India, 28 median age. The U.S., 38 and getting older every single day. I gave you the European numbers. I give it. This is a young person's thing. Decentralization is desired by the people who are in poverty. Emerging markets are in the bottom part of the scale of wealth. And the people that are wealthy in emerging markets, for the most part, are in the older side. And so this transfer of dollars, all of these things to me, the crypto story is not dead. If anything, it is still alive, but it is going to thrive in EM. And rather than it become a public market thing, I think EM will just make their businesses more efficient. They'll benefit more. They'll get more DeFi activity, which it's really important. I mean, to be able to get decentralized finance is a major, major story in emerging markets. And even though we're still in the early innings, I think when you look back five, 10 years from now, you're going to have wished that you spent a lot more time on what's happening in emerging markets with crypto. Any other factors you want to touch on? Regarding what? <laughs> Regarding the move to emerging markets, I'm thinking about things like the electrification boom, for example. Yeah, so... Obviously, emerging markets have a major part of the commodity side. If I had to pick like just four 
countries to use as the EM countries of there were the BRICS back in the 2000 to 2007. Yeah, that's period. done. Yeah. Well, Brazil's still around, yeah. but yeah, and India's still around, but the Russia and China thing has kind of gone. So instead of it being brick, I'll just go with uh, BIMI, Brazil, <laughs> India, Mexico, Indonesia. I would have thrown Turkey in there too, and I guess you could. And that was always thought as the kind of the next one. But regardless, Africa is going to have some part of this. So this is really, let's just take technology out and go the other direction. And let's just pick on these places where their median age is lower. They're going to benefit a lot from crypto. And I just think it's an important time, but all of those countries also dominate in terms of land for commodities. And China's still going to need this. We're still going to need rare earth. We're still going to need energy. We're still going to need all of these things as we shift more towards climate change. And so I think as the electrification goes on, these countries are going to benefit just like all kind of commodity booms. I don't think this is an inflationary boom anymore, but I do think the demand for commodities will remain stable. And so a lot of times when you look at commodity charts, you go through these cycles where they explode higher until they get too high and then they fall back down. And then we go through a period where there's no investment. I'm thinking that energy and most Let's just stick with energy because it's the most important commodity. If oil stays between 70 and 125 for the next five to seven years, that's a very, very powerful thing for emerging markets. All right. So Brazil, India, Mexico, and Indonesia. Yeah, I'll go with those. All right. I'll go with them as well. Thank you so much, Jordy. Thanks, D3. This podcast should not be reproduced, copied, distributed, or published in whole or in part. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only. The views expressed herein are subject to change without notice. Information in this podcast is based on data regarding current market conditions from sources believed to be reliable. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. You should consult your own advisors regarding business, legal, tax, or other matters concerning investment. Any health-related information shared on this podcast is not intended as medical advice or for use in self-diagnosis or treatment. Please consult a qualified healthcare professional before acting upon any health-related information on this podcast. Please review related show notes for this podcast and visit www.gweiss.com to review related disclosures and learn more about Weiss.